in the room at some point, we went through and we literally did our like horoscopes or like zodiac signs, but with the show. So it's like, are you a Deborah? Are you an Ava? Mm-hmm. Are you a Marcus? Whatever. I said that. I think I said I am a I am a Deborah with Marcus rising. <laughs> Mar- Marcus Moon. Marcus Moon sign. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant. I'm David Chen, and it's been a few weeks since the last episode of Culturally Relevant. I'm sorry about that. You know, it's a small crew that puts on this podcast, specifically a crew of one. I'm the host, producer, and editor, and sometimes when there's a lot going on in my life, uh, the episodes don't get made on time. That said, uh, I have continued to make stuff, obviously, on the Filmcast, on my YouTube channel, and also at patreon.com slash Dave Chen, which is the best way to keep track of everything I'm working on. So be sure to check out patreon.com slash Dave Chen, support what I'm doing. But I wanted to return with Culturally Relevant in the most spectacular way imaginable. And I think I am doing that today with this conversation you're about to hear. Today's episode is really special because sometimes someone you went to high school with, someone you went to church with, grows up and becomes a big-time Hollywood writer and producer and makes hit TV shows. And sometimes the person you grow up with goes on to make podcasts about hit TV shows. And this episode combines the latter with the former. I've known Andrew Law for a really long time, but it wasn't until recently that we reconnected and I realized he's literally one of the most talented comedy writers working in show business today. Andrew Law is a writer and producer who's worked on shows such as The Good Place and Silicon Valley. He's also written several episodes of the HBO Max original series Hacks, which tells the story of Deborah Vance, a legendary stand-up comedian played by Gene Smart, who must join forces with Ava, a young comedy writer played by Hannah Einbinder, in order to reinvent herself. Did you have something else to say? (sighs) Yeah. You've just been pretty rude and I dropped everything to come here. Oh, Christ. Oh, you wanted a gold star just for showing up? Kinda, yeah, because you're right. I'm not a fan of yours. You caught me. This is all just a little fucking annoying because I flew all the way here on Spirit fucking Airlines, even though I didn't want this job in the first place. I mean, the last thing on earth I want to do is move to the desert to write some lame jokes for an old hack. I think you better leave. Yeah. Can I show you to the door? Would you like to go back up the chimney? Oh, no, I know my way out. By the way, so cool they let you move into a cheesecake factory. Oh, is that where you wait tables? That seems like a better fit. Oh, yeah, I agree, you classist monster. I'd rather slang bang bang chicken and shrimp all day than work here. I mean, fuck, what is this, 50 tassels on one couch? Even Liberace would think it's a bit much. Oh, no, you're incorrect. He actually loved it. He did poppers on that couch in 85. Hacks has won numerous awards, including Emmy Awards for Best Actress, Best Writing, and Best Directing. It just concluded its second season. This was a super fun conversation, just about life, about how Andrew grew up and left the town that we went to high school in, and became a comedy writer. We also talked about what it's like in the era of remote writers' rooms during COVID, what our favorite 30 Rock gags are, and what resonates with him about the HBO original series Hacks. I had a lot of fun reconnecting with Andrew having this conversation. I hope you enjoy it as well. I do want to note, Andrew is passing through Seattle, and that's why we had a chance to talk in real life. Um, But I'm still being pretty careful when it comes to COVID, so we actually recorded this conversation in my garage with the door open. So you might hear some random car and other sounds in the background. That's what that is. Before we begin, I also want to thank my executive producer patrons at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Specifically, want to thank Kevin Sao, Ian, Stephen Miller, Sid Yadov, Steve Austin, Kwong Yu Lu, Dan Flanagan, Jeff Evans, and Mark Warner, and all the other fine folks over at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Thank you so much for your support. It really does make a huge difference. Of course, you don't need to spend money to support me. All you got to do is share about this podcast on your social medias. Leave a podcast review at Apple Podcasts or follow this podcast on Twitter at CREVSHOW. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. Without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Andrew Law. Stick around afterwards for our weekly recommendations. I know I bombed at my show. On this tour, it's all about back to basics. And we need a really good tour manager. Name's Alice. Everybody calls me Weed. That's a nickname Pete Wentz gave me. And once Pete gives you a nickname, it, it sticks. Tour starts tonight. Welcome to paradise. Could I take out one of your face screams looking for a spot for my kombucha? If it's not kept cold, it'll keep fermenting in the bottle and it can explode. Oh, God, fine. Here, give it to me. You're right. It did explode. Andrew Law, thanks so much for speaking with me today. 
Thanks for having me. I generally like to start with breaking in stories, how you broke into the industry, but I'm actually going to start a little bit earlier with you because we tangentially knew each other when we were in high school. Yeah. Um, so why don't you start by telling me when you realized you wanted to do what you're doing for a living right now? You know, I, I mean, when I realized it was probably actually much later. It was like probably when I was like 23 or 24. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like knew from a very young age, I was like very interested in comedy. Yeah. Like I used to, I think this probably predated, you know, high school. Mm-hmm. But I used to obviously like stay up late, watch SNL, like used to um, like record on VHS, like all my favorite syndicated like uh-huh. um, shows, like Home Improvement, News Radio. News Radio was my absolute favorite. So I good. was like yeah. um, obsessed with News Radio. I remember watching like tons of reruns of News Radio on like TNT or whatever, or TBS oh, yeah, or whatever, yeah. just like endlessly. Yeah. That sitcom block that was right before like the evening news, mm-hmm. where it was like, um, like. Home Improvement, Seinfeld, Friends, like uh, sometimes Frasier and um, and News Radio. I was just like obsessed with. I, I had seen so every episode so many times, and I remember like which episodes were which, and I would like either like skip some or go through them or whatever. And I remember like setting like my VCR to like record my favorite episodes. <laughs> I was just like obsessed at that point, and I was probably like you know elementary school, like middle school. And what what about it? appealed to you like was there something where you like uh, laughing feels good i want to make others laugh or was it like was it more complicated you know what's interesting is even at that time you know obviously i'm a comedy writer Mm -hmm. and even at that time i don't think i knew that comedy writing was a job Mm -hmm. like i remember i actually put in my senior quote in high school was from news radio Mm -hmm. and it was uh a quote from Bill McNeil, one of, you know, the Phil Hartman character yes. on news radio. But I like, I attributed it to Phil Hartman. Like I was, I wrote <laughs> that quote and it was like dash Phil Hartman. And it's like, of course it's not Phil Hartman, right? It's mm-hmm. like Bill McNeil, the character. And somebody wrote those lines for him to say. So I, I don't even think at that point I really understood how television was made. You thought they just showed up and I thought they showed up and, and they just sort of said, and said funny things, things funny, in yeah. character yeah. and then they shot it and like yeah. whatever. I mean, I think in some ways, like I knew that there was like I, I was familiar with like um, I was familiar with the idea of comedy writing and TV writing. And but I didn't know what a writer's room was. I didn't know what the process was. I was much more focused on like the actors and sort of like the sets and stuff like that than I was like any sort of like the behind the scenes production stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And then in high school, I was at LHS, which you were too, Lexington High School. And we happened to have an improv team, like an improv comedy team which I don't think every high school did have. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a really strong drama program. And so I like sort of got into it that way. Like I took drama classes and they told us that there was like an improv uh, team. And then I was like, okay, I'll go audition. So I auditioned like my junior year, didn't get in. And then I auditioned my senior year and got in. And I was like, oh my God. So like, this is my life now. And it was, I loved it. Mm-hmm. And um, then, you know. Oh, and uh, why, why did you love it? If you can characterize it in any way. I don't, I don't, I, I honestly don't really know. I mean, like, I think, like, part of it is, like, some people have described that sort of, like, feeling when you get your first laugh, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, my God, this feels good. Yeah. That was, like, probably, like, fourth grade. I was like, wow, it feels good <laughs> to make people laugh, to be, like, the class clown, whatever. Also, like, you know, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze myself, but... We grew up in, like, a very traditional sort of, like, upbringing. We went to the same church. Yeah. Our parents were, like... Um, Chinese immigrants and like you know I think there was something like transgressive about it or something Mm -hmm. where I was like oh I'm doing something that isn't like a traditional path that feels good that feels like maybe risky um, and scary and yeah like I I think that that's definitely part of it too and it, it also opened the door to me doing more plays and more creative stuff generally. Which, like writing plays or? No, at that point, just acting in acting plays. plays yeah. yeah. And that was like really fun. So, yeah. you know, I, I like it was it was a great time. And I made some of my really good friends in high school through it. It's interesting. Yeah. We both were raised in pretty cons- conservative mm-hmm. environments. And, uh, and I guess there was a part of you that like felt excited to be doing something that was like so clearly outside of what any of our parents would want us to be doing. Exactly. Like there's something about it that was like, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily like why I did it, Mm -hmm. but like, I definitely 
I'm sure there was like there was a like part a, fr- of the a frisson to it. Yes, that, <laughs> that you're like, yeah, it, it makes you, you know, um, it's like an added icing on the cake. I actually thing. remember this is like from way earlier, right? But this is in fourth grade, and there was a fourth grade play. And I was kind of like, I remember the star of the fourth grade play. And there was like a, a we had to memorize lines. There was this whole thing. And it was like a, almost like a comedy sketch with me and this other kid in my fourth grade class. And I remember at the end, the parents going up to my mom and being like, he was so good. You should get him acting lessons. He could be, you know, he could be a child actor or something like that. And my mom would be like, no, absolutely <laughs> not. She, she, I was, it wasn't even, it wasn't even like, ha, ha, maybe like, it was like, <laughs> no, like don't, and like, kind of like, don't even put that idea into his head. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was like, yeah. she had absolutely no sense of humor about it. And like yeah. part of it to me was like, Maybe like some part of that stuck in my mind, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this," or like my parents wouldn't like this, or whatever. Do you uh, have a sense of what your parents wanted you to do? You know, I think well, they're both in the math and sciences, mm. right? So my mom's an accountant, was an accountant, she's retired now, and my dad is too, and uh, he was a scientist. And so, you know, I, I definitely think that they have much more quantitative brains, or. If they don't, that's what they chose for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just never felt like I had the aptitude for that. Like I took like um, microeconomics in college, like intro to microeconomics. I was yeah. so bad. <laughs> I needed like I needed like intense tutoring to get through that course. I was like I couldn't. I I, I can't to this day. I mean, like why would I? But like balance um, a. Uh, what is it called? Balancing equation in like mm-hmm. a, oh, nice. in chemistry. I had oh. to have like also very intense tutoring for like chemistry. I just like don't. It's it's. Um, not really something that I'm good at. I, I got by, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't like the worst person at math and science. I just like wasn't, it yeah. wasn't my thing. It's not, yeah, yeah. And I think with my parents, like maybe something in there, I, I think like mostly with immigrant parents, and you can speak to this too, it's just like they just don't want you to take any risks. They want you to just yes. Yes. have something extremely reliable with a pension and then retire. Yeah. <laughs> like that's like basically what they, and so like the idea of anything volatile or creative, anything where, you might be like a starving artist or anything is completely um, terrifying to them. It's fascinating. I, I am aware of that uh, stereotype and it's a stereotype because it's true. It's like, mm. you know, immigrant parents, we we came from a land of not plenty to a land of plenty. And so there's like, they want you to hold on to whatever you have and right. choose something safe. I think it was, it was slightly different for me and my family because um, my dad was very blue collar. Right. Uh-huh. Like he owned a Chinese restaurant and like um, our high school that we went to together was very, I would say, upper class. overall. Yes. You know, yeah. um, and so and it's not until I like looked back on it later that it's like, um, oh, they probably had some kind of chip on their shoulder because like literally all of, you know, my peers' parents were like right. scientists and mathematicians and professors and stuff like that. And my dad like was a waiter and worked at a Chinese restaurant. You right, know? right. Um, and so their, um, their credibility when it came to warning me off of risky things is like not as high. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think about this all the time with my immigrant parents. It's like, you know, like the fact that like, what they did was extremely risky, yes, right? Yes. And and in many ways, like, it's part of who we are, right? It's mm-hmm. like, I mean, I don't know if it's genetic or whatever, <laughs> but it's like, you know, obviously... There's they, risk baked into your personality. Yeah, you like, like you yeah. know, the, like, we both come from a set of parents, both of whom, like, um, did an extremely crazy thing if you just stop and think about it which is like (laughs) leaving the country of their origin Mm -hmm. to move to a foreign country where they're going to be a minority where they don't speak the language necessarily entirely yeah um like well um and where they have to like start over with oftentimes with very little money with my parents it was a little very little same and so it's like so that's an extreme risk and like it is – and they're – you know, they came here. They're completely isolated from their families, right? They had to seek community, friends, you know, support systems, all that sort of stuff. And like – but then when it comes to us, it's like don't take any risks, right? It's like I took all the risks. So then therefore you, yeah. don't, you never yes. have to take another risk again yes. in your life. Yes. But, but you stop and think about that for one second. You're like that makes no sense. <laughs> 
It's like, obviously, I am your child, right? Like, we're going to have similarities. Maybe mm-hmm. one of those similarities is risk-taking, mm-hmm. or at least not, or at least like- Or at least a spirit of adventure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, like, it's so funny to me that, like, they did this, ex- in my mind, one of the scariest things I can think of, yeah. certainly something that I wouldn't necessarily want to do, but then when it comes to, like, okay, I might want to pursue something outside of medicine or law or science or whatever, yeah. it's like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Right. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. So you took that spirit of adventure. Yeah. Uh, you realized you didn't like math and the quantitative sciences. Yeah. And you were like, uh, I'm going to go into show business. How How did you break in? What was your first big break? Uh, oh, gosh. Um, well, I, I think it would probably be, you know, I mean, there's a few steps along the way. But um, I got my agent manager through a showcase that I did at UCB. Um, which I can't tell if it exists anymore or not. I think. And what is a what is a showcase for this? A showcase is like you know, um, they get a bunch of comedians like who don't have representation oftentimes, Mm and it's for reps, and they literally do like a ten minute set, different characters, or if they're stand up, they do stand up, or you know, um, sketches or whatever, and then they yeah, then they get um sort of like a uh, response from whoever's there, right? So if they're trying to hire people for the, for a show, mm-hmm. like the show decides if they want to hire them as writers or actors based off of that. And if there's reps, like, you know, managers and agents, they sort of decide if they want to hip pocket them or um, sign them, you know, based off of that showcase. Do you remember anything you did in the showcase? Gosh. Oh, I remember, okay, I remember there was I played this character. So it was an NBC showcase. It was sponsored mm. by NBC, and I remember I played this character who thought it was the ABC showcase, <laughs> and kept promoting shows um, that were currently on ABC, including mm-hmm. the um, uh, now canceled Revenge. <laughs> remember, like this character was like obsessed with revenge and promoting revenge. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so I remember like that was that was probably yeah that's one that I remember. I mean, like it was such a long time ago at yeah. this point. I think yeah. it must have been. Over 10 years ago, yeah. I feel like that's like a pretty ballsy one to do, you know? I like, think, you know, what it was was I was going into it, and I had several friends who were in it as well, and they were right. much more established than I was. Mm-hmm. And they had, uh, you know, just like, and, and by more established. Yeah, what do you now mean Now in retrospect, it's, it's so funny, but it's like, it, by more established, I just mean like at UCB. So they were like <laughs> more, on a few more teams than I was, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. and they did a few more shows at the theater. But in my mind, you know, yeah, in yeah. my like twenty-two-year-old mind or whatever, I was just like, oh my god, they have like everything. But for the world, <laughs> that's the world. You all look basically yeah. The same, for anyone right? like, who was uh, who didn't go to UCB Chelsea on like twenty-third <laughs> and Eighth Street or whatever, mm-hmm. they didn't care. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. So, but in my mind, they were so much more established. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, like, I was like, I have nothing to lose. I should just go in here guns blazing. I should just do whatever the fuck I want. I literally thought about that. I was like, I am the least well-known person in the set, so I should do whatever. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. then, it, you know, it, I think it paid off because, like, at least I got my reps through that. Yeah. yeah. So you got your reps, and then what was your first kind of big break? My first big break was uh, probably writing for Late Night with Seth Meyers. Yeah. So I was living in L.A. at the time, actually. I'd moved out there to um, do a short writing stint on a show. And then I also was acting on HBO's Looking as a recurring character, which was very strange. And uh, how, how, did now, that, how did that come about? I just auditioned for it. Oh, nice. And then, and then I got it. But, but I, I, now, you know, I, I, I rarely act. Mm-hmm. So now, now, in retrospect, it seems weird. Yeah. Um, Is this something you want to do more of or wish you did more of? Now? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think, like, in terms of if I have, like, a writer's soul or an actor's soul, because I've heard people say that. Yeah. Like, a definitely writer. Yeah. Like, I, I really like writing and would be upset if I couldn't do it for the rest of my life. Right. But with acting, it's, like, more like uh, extra credit. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you never did acting again, you'd be I think fine. I'd be fine. Yeah. You'd be yeah. Fine. yeah. Uh, and then, you know, and so um, and so I just auditioned for this this show. Yeah. And ironically, I played a, a straight person on Looking, which was so strange, being mm-hmm. on a gay show and playing a straight person. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I, so, um, ended up, um, getting, uh, late night with Seth Meyers and moving back to New York on like four days notice, which was insane. But <laughs> and like, now how did you get, did you write a, uh, like I wrote a, a packet, packet? Yeah. and I remember I wrote it in September and then I didn't hear anything. And then I, I think I got, uh, called in to meet with him in like early December. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this has been an enormous amount of time. I, and I think it was because he was still finishing up his uh, run at SNL at Weekend Update. 
Um, and then he was switching over to his show. And so like they were sort of still figuring out the production mm. and getting their offices and all that sort of stuff. So then I go in and meet with him in December and it goes well. Um, I don't can't really tell if I got it or not. And then like I hear like first week of January that I got it. And then I have to I think I heard on a Wednesday and they were like, you start Monday or something like that. So I had like and so like I, I f booked a flight for like Thursday, which meant that I like had to like get all my stuff there in four days or something. Well, a couple of questions. <clears throat> first of all, uh, did you actually meet with him in person? With Seth Meyers in person, yeah, 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 and like at that, I guess you'd already been acting at that point, but like I don't know about you, but I had to, you know, when I first started, I'm obviously not in the industry in the same way as you are, but like when I first started, um, I was very like starstruck, yeah, and like I would like freak out whenever like I talked to anyone even remotely famous or whatever, you know, and I I had this whole like, um. Because I was just like, it, it was not anything I possibly could have expected that I would ever be in this situation, right? Mentally, I'm freaking out talking to you right now. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm curious, like, at that point, were you like, oh, yeah, this is a normal thing, me talking to Seth Meyers from a Saturday Night Live? It was or, a you know, normal thing. Yeah. But I had met, you know, I so I had worked on this Comedy Central show before, and they had guests. And there were, like, you know, several people who I, like, recognized from film and TV and stuff. And... Um, and I think I had been like, you know, coming up through UCB, a lot of the people that you come up with become stars, right? right? So, like, when I first started UCB, like, Donald Glover was a performer there. Yeah. Like, Zach Woods was a performer there. And so, like, all of a sudden, now these people are on TV shows. So, it's not as though I had no exposure to it. Yeah. But the but the thing that really um, sort of I came away with was that 30 Rock as a place is an extremely intimidating place. I mean, it's old. The actual building like, you're talking Like, Art Deco building, yeah. yes. And then you, like... Go in there, and like there is this sort of like, you know, and I think it probably well, comes Thirty from Rock SNL. Center, which is where the Seth Meyers show is filmed. We should say, right? yes. yes, and and also SNL, yes, and like all the other Broadway yeah. video shows. And I think that like there is this sort of like, you know, um, almost like withholding of affection or feedback or something like that, <laughs> where you go in there and it's just like people are really hard to read. Mm -hmm. You know, um, mm -hmm. a lot of people. I think it is sort of this like um, cultural thing maybe mm -hmm. where and, and I don't mean that like they're not warm or anything like that. It's just that like people sort of keep their cards close to their vest and yeah. whatever. And um, and so like I just couldn't get a good read on whether or not I did well in the meeting. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like sometimes yeah. you like walk away from a meeting, you're like, I nailed that or like yeah. a pitch and you're like, okay, if they didn't buy that, I don't know what they're buying or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And like with that, I was just like, I can't tell if he liked me or didn't like me or whatever, you know? And I, I feel like that was, you know, after working there, I realized like that is just like part of that. The culture. Building. Yeah. Is it, but isn't that kind of true in show business in general though? Or do you kind not of? Always. No, not always. Yeah. I would say like sometimes for sure. Like, you know, obviously. I, I guess my sense is there's more of like phoniness. Like you, you go to a meeting and then like everyone's like, like, oh, oh my this God, is great. I love you. And, then, and then you like, they actually like hate you or, you know, they don't like you as much as they said they did or like that seems more common to me or this seems yeah. extremely common to me. From I don't know. I, I, I think that of course there's phoniness. Yeah. I, I do think that like for the most part, like it's a waste of their time to even meet with you if they're not somewhat interested. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure like necessarily it's, in that sort of situation would be common. But I do think that, you know, um, I've, I've been in environments where it's even more sort of like withholding and like less sort of like, you know, where you stand or whatever. And then I've also been in environments now where like it's, you get a lot of feedback. Right. Mm -hmm. And in fact, like, as we talk about the changing culture of like writer's rooms and stuff like that, I think that is something that people have talked about more. Like, you know, most people, when they first staff on a show as a staff writer, and I'm talking about scripted shows, like, you have no idea if you're doing well, if you're not doing well, if you're talking too much, if you're not talking enough, if you're not pitching enough, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, if you're talking over the other producers, like, whatever. Because it's just like, okay, we don't have time. we got to make the show. Yeah. And I do – I have noticed in more recent rooms and stuff like that that people are just a little bit more willing – to be a little bit more uh, like um, open with feedback and with just sort of like um, being more direct if they don't like something or if they do like something. Yeah. Yeah. So you then worked for Late Night with Seth Meyers. Yeah. And what was that experience like? Um, it was good. It was, it, it was, um, <laughs> it was 
it was a great training ground and I really feel lucky to have worked for Seth and Mike Schumacher who are both very nice, um, considerate human beings. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, the, let me ask a much better question. than <laughs> what was that like? Um, what is something you learned from that? Because like, was it, it's a, a little bit different. There are some sketches on the show, right? Yeah. But it's mostly kind of monologue stuff or obviously the closer look stuff is very, uh-huh. very popular right now online. Um, so like, what was something you, you felt like you learned from that experience? Um, you know, honestly, joke writing, you know, so I had written for standups before, um, the comedy central show I had worked on before was also like sort of joke based, but I really learned how to write like set up punchline monologue jokes mm-hmm. on that show. And I also learned how to write in Seth's voice, which is like really important as you come up to like learn how to write in somebody else's voice. That's not yours. Um, because that's what you're going to be doing for most of your career. <laughs> and, um, and you know, it was really – it was a really fun experience. Like I think, you know, now in the Hacks room, um, people ask us, do you have a special room for the stand-up? Do you like workshop it? Mm-hmm. Like what, what do you do? Because on the show Hacks, there's actual stand-up performed in the show. Right. Itself. There's fictional stand-up, yeah, fictional right? Stand-up, Which right. is like – Honestly, arguably, like some of the hardest stuff that I've had yeah, to write. Yeah. Because, you know, and honestly, it's not always like intentionally good. Like sometimes it's supposed to be hacky. Right. Right. And like the whole point of season one is that this new writer, sort of Ava, played by Hannah Einbinder, is like trying to push her out of her comfort zone where yeah. she's been doing this kind of like stayed, comfortable act. Um, that she's done for many decades. Yeah. And so like, you know, writing that stuff is different from like the new stuff that's supposed to be good and eye-opening right. and sort of, you know, um, <clears throat> a new thing for her to try. I feel like one of the most famous instances in which like there is a fictional thing where in that thing a funny thing is performed is Aaron Sorkin's Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Yeah, oh my God. Which is like... What is that? It's like, it is so... The modern funny. major, yeah, it, yeah, it was HMS Pinafore, like... Yes. So, okay, so just so people know what we're talking about, in Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, like, there's a fictional Saturday Night Live-esque show, and I was very curious how they're going to handle... These the sketches, sketches, because in Sports Night, yes. Aaron Sorkin's other show, you never see the broadcast, like you, or you only see like the beginnings and ends of the broadcast. Right. So I could totally see a scenario where you never actually see the SNL stuff. Mm-hmm. You actually just it's referred to, right? But then the first time they drop a sketch, it's like it's bad. It's bad. It's it's, <laughs> it's very cringy and not funny, and it, and it's not even. And what's even crazier is it's not anything that SNL would do. Mm-hmm. It's like so. Mm-hmm. It's like weird musical theater humor. It's like what Aaron Sorkin thinks, right. You know, SNL should do, right? right? And and uh, and th- that is very challenging because in that show, it's supposed to be like the funniest show of all time. Basically, it's supposed right. to be like amazing, like hilarious. People are dying of laughter. Well, that's why like Thirty Rock in many ways like is. Um, the, the TV show now, not the, the, the building. 30, yeah, Thirty Rock, the TV show, <laughs> um, which weirdly greenlit the same year as yeah. Studio 60 on the same network, yeah. um, I think took a much smarter and probably realistic approach, which is like, these sketches are fucking dumb. Like, every time they would <laughs> cut, cut to a sketch, it would be like the dumbest <laughs> premise you'd ever heard of. I was just thinking, one of my friends recently posted this, and I was thinking about, like, the... Uh, movie posters in Tracy Jordan's dressing yes, room, yes. which were all these fictional posters that the character Tracy Jordan was supposed to have done. Yeah, and um, one of them was Tracy Jordan is fat bitch. She's off the leash, <laughs> and it's 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 basically like a terrible fictional movie where obviously like Tracy Jordan was like died or something like that, and his like soul was transported into um the body of like a 90 pound chow mix oh. and it's like and it's so insane but it's like i think that they took this like approach towards comedy which is like comedy is dumb comedy is stupid mm-hmm. like but there's actually a line in like episode six of hacks where um like uh um they're talking about uh one of the characters uh infant daughters and um, the character goes, I don't think she's going to be a comedian. She's really comfortable with herself. And, you know, and it's like, it's almost this like scornful approach towards like comedy that I think is, that most comedians I think really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite fictional 30 Rock property? I guess one is a TV show. One is a movie, one is a TV show. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So one is a movie poster that appears in uh-huh. 30 Rock. Uh-huh. And it's, um, are you familiar with this? It's Transformers 5, Planet of the Earth. <laughs> And then, and then at the bottom of the poster, it says, written by no one. 
Okay, and the it's other too one. too bad because there actually is a Transformers 5. I but know, it's not yeah. Titled this it, was yeah. clearly this, this, dates is this joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the other one. <laughs> and the other one is Tennis Night in America. Are you uh-huh. familiar with this? No. So Jenna Maroney like so does this like Monday Night Football style song uh-huh, uh-huh. that is like really patriotic. She's like wearing a cowboy hat and like dancing yeah. around, and, and she's like, "It's tennis night in America." <laughs> and there's like, I think it's like NBC's like att- I forget how the context of it in the show, but I think it's like NBC's attempt to like sell tennis to like America as mm-hmm. like football, basically. Yes, yes. And it's it's so funny, and and the, and it's a, it's like it's not a short song; it's a long song uh-huh. <laughs> like that. She and she does the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my favorite's probably the rural juror. Yeah. Oh and yeah. Just because it's hard. It's hard to say, and that's the whole joke. Yeah. <laughs> the rural juror. The rural juror. The rural juror. The rural juror. Yeah. The rural juror. Yeah. It is. It is really funny. Yeah. So you were saying how working at Seth Meyers' show helped you figure out how to like write joke punchline. You know, do you have a philosophy as to what makes for a good joke punchline, or any kind of way of thinking about it formally behind, um, besides just gut feel? Well, honestly. The thing that I learned at Seth, which now I no longer have, because, you know, monologue writing is hard and you kind of have to do it all the time (laughs) in order to stay good at it. But a big part of it is like learning what the angle is on somebody. Right. Mm -hmm. So like um, if you're writing Ted Cruz jokes, like four days out of the week, you're going to know like sort of like what the what the funny angle that always hits is. Right. Or Trump jokes or Biden jokes or whatever. But if you kind of like don't and you're kind of like guessing, then it is harder. Right. So Mm -hmm. like I would say like my monologue topical joke writing skills are not as good as they used to be Um, because like you just like uh, like if you were to ask me to write like a Marjorie Taylor Greene joke right now, I would be like, "Eh, okay, so uh, Jewish space lasers. I don't know. Like I don't know exactly (laughs) what people know about Mm -hmm. her because it's like it's honestly about what will track with an audience. Like what do they know about this person that hits? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I'm truly just not as good at it anymore. Thankfully, none of the stand up in hacks is topical really, Mm -hmm. because it's all like based on her life. It's more biographical and you can kind of make that stuff up. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately it's like, you know, set up, is like the information that the audience needs to understand the joke. And then like the punchline is some subversion of that. So that that's unexpected and surprising and uh-huh. that, that they will find funny if they can guess what the punchline is, it's bad. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I wrote for Seth and it was also re- really um, good to have that experience because it wasn't just his show. He hosted the Emmys while I was there. So, you know, you sort of learn how to write for somebody like, at an event mm-hmm. and then like after that's where i met uh, michelle wolf who ended up hosting the white house correspondence dinner and wrote for her on that so it, it was a good opportunity to sort of like you know um I, I i still have a lot of friends from that um two years that i spent there and then you know and still get to work with some of them sometimes so then you uh went to work for the good place in, in silicon valley which is obviously mm-hmm. like writing for those shows is, my guess is a very different experience than writing for seth myers right yes yeah um you know what I was astounded by when I first got to The Good Place was like how little – and I don't mean this in like uh, any sort of derogatory way, but it's like how much less work it is day to day. Because <laughs> at Seth Meyers, what I thought writing was was like getting in at like 9.30 or whatever and like writing like seven pages of monologue jokes and a sketch by like noon, mm-hmm. right? And it was just – and by the way, I, I also just didn't know what I was doing. So I was writing way too many jokes and probably way too many sketches. <laughs> uh-huh. But I also was like, oh, write, like a writing job is like actually doing a ton of literal writing yeah. every single day. And when you get to like a scripted room, what you realize is like there's – you know, I didn't even bring my computer most days to like <laughs> – <laughs> to, like, I, and, and then they gave us computers. I barely even turned them on. It was mm-hmm. just like, you know, what you really do in a scripted room is you sit around a coffee table or on couches or a conference room and you talk about the characters and you talk about the stories and you figure out where the act breaks are and what you want to happen to them. And you say, OK, did we do this last season or is this something new and fresh for this character? And you sort of like just like talk for most of the day and then you put up some index cards or you 
you write it out on a whiteboard and then you go home. Like that's really it. And it's not a ton of until you get to the outlining and scripting phase, it's not a lot of actual writing. Mm -hmm. Then once once you get to that phase, it is a lot of writing. You write 30 pages, right? As opposed to, you know, a, a few jokes. Right. But um that was what I was astounded by. I was like, oh my God, I can relax. <laughs> I was like, I don't have to like constantly I don't even I, I think my first week I even was like frantically taking notes to try to like remember all the things that were said. And then I re realized there's a writer's assistant there who's doing that. Mm -hmm. who will give you the notes at the end of the day mm -hmm. for you to read over if you missed anything. And that like the best thing you can do as a staff writer is just sit there, pay attention, try to contribute when you can and, uh, you know, and build off of other people's ideas. Yeah. Um, which is so, such a different writing process from sit at your computer and pump out, you know, however many pages of jokes. Yeah. So tell me about how you uh, got involved with Hacks then. So Hacks was um, a good place ended. And as it was ending, um, Jen Statsky, who I worked with um, at The Good Place, and uh, Paul Downs and Lucia Aniello, who I knew from just UCB um, in New York and who had written for Broad City and done a bunch of other things, they had sold a, a show to HBO Max, um, the last season of The Good Place, um, produced by Mike Shore. I remember him going out with them for pitches and stuff like that. And uh, I think they were still in the middle of like sort of attaching cast. I think they got Gene Smart um, and stuff like that. I wrote for uh, Aquafina as Nora from Queens. And then um, we were in the middle of the pandemic, actually. And I was like, I'm not working. I'm going fully crazy. <laughs> I'm, you know, like it was weird because we went from in person for Nora from Queens um, to remote. It was like half in the office. We all met each other and everything like that. And then half out. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually remember it was so funny. It was, it was a majority Asian writer's room. Mm -hmm. And I remember our writer's assistant was coming back from Beijing at the time at like the, when we were first hearing about COVID and we were like, hope she's not contagious, LOL. <laughs> and then, and then like cut to a month later, we we're fully shutting down production. <laughs> <laughs> or like everyone's like trying to fly home before like the airports are closing. Mm -hmm. We're like truly scrambling to figure out how to like use Zoom from home and do like a, a remote writer's room. Yeah. I was like, wow, we really, we really underestimated that one. <laughs> um, it was, it was, it was so ridiculous. Uh -huh. But anyway, so it was the summer of 2020. Yeah. And, um, and so I had been off of Nora from Queens for several months now. And they, you know, called me and were like, would you want to do this show? You know, we'd love to have you. And I was like thrilled. The one apprehension I had was I had never worked for friends of mine before. And I, I think I had like some sort of like fear that like it would change our relationship mm -hmm. or it would alter our dynamic or that, you know, a lot of times, you know, in writers' rooms, not that there's like conflict, but there's definitely dis disagreement and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I was sort of like, I hope that this doesn't change anything. And it didn't. Honestly, it just it made things better. I, I, I truly believe that. Like, um, I have a great relationship with all three of them. And it, they are great bosses. Mm -hmm. They're really good at what they do. They're really decisive. Um, they uh, listen and, you know, like, uh, don't dismiss anyone. And they're, um, yeah, they've been great to work for, honestly. And they, they're super supportive of everyone. So, um yeah, my fears were largely unwarranted, I think. You mentioned transitioning from uh, in-person to Zoom, like writer's rooms on Zoom now. Yeah. Um, how has that transition been? Because I, I listen to podcasts and I hear lots of writers complain about it. Like it's, it's not – doesn't replicate the in-person experience. And I'm curious like how you feel about it. Do you feel like, no, it's – it's better in some ways, worse than some ways, or it's totally bad, or you know. You know, I know the that there's been a lot of discussions among writers as to whether like remote writers' rooms or hybrid writers' rooms or whatever are like effective. Um, I think it's hard to argue that they're not effective because we did write two seasons of television <laughs> remotely. It's like kind of hard to be like, no, we got to be in person. We got to need, got to have our snacks. We got to have crafty. Um, but at the same time, I will say this, and I hope it, this doesn't get me in trouble with anybody because I know like the people in the guild and stuff like that are trying to like make it so that like if people do want to do in-person writers rooms they can right and obviously in-person writers rooms are more expensive for studios and networks right to, mm -hmm. to actually rent office space and furnish it and have people in it but i gotta say i recently did an in-person writers room for two weeks for a punch-up room and it was great and fun and i saw a lot of people that i'd worked with before but i did not prefer it to doing a remote. Really? And I'll tell you why. Yeah. Like, 
like being late sucks because of some car accident. Mm-hmm. It's stressful. It's um I had to like, you know, I have a dog and I had forgotten how easy it is <laughs> to have a dog when you are you know, working from home uh-huh. and you can walk them at any time you have a break, you know? <laughs> and I was just like, shit, I have to like get up early, walk my dog, head to the gym. Like it was just like a million other yeah. things. My first day I showed up, I had nothing. I forgot what you bring to the office. <laughs> I didn't have like a backpack, anything. I was like, oh, I, I should probably have a pen, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just like, I didn't. I, I think they generally my... have those at offices. Though. Yeah, yeah. Notepads and stuff, staples. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, sure. But you know, and and not only that, but like um, in this uh, office situation, they made us wear masks the whole time, mm-hmm. which you know, for eight hours a day is like yeah. just not the most comfortable thing, and it also literally makes it hard to hear people if they're in a different right. part of the room. Well, it, it's challenging because your whole job is to talk to other people. Yes. it's not. It's not like you're, you know, exactly. Uh, it, I, obviously, every job is challenging in its own way. But I'm just saying, you know, the mask impedes something that you're trying to specifically do as part of your job. Absolutely, right? and like I realized, like I forgot how much um it like you rely on lunch in a writer's room like an in-person writer's room you're like where is lunch like the, the second you sit down in your chair at 10 in, 10 in the morning you're like is it lunch yet i gotta have lunch uh-huh. i am so hungry mm-hmm. and like but isn't that a, isn't that a vote in favor of an in-person writer's room though no because if you're home you got your snacks i see yeah you, you know and not only that but it's like you know honestly sometimes i would order lunch early and I'd just be like, hey, guys, just, you know, I'm listening, but I'm going to be getting some bites off camera here. You know, I'm just I need to eat. Your boy's got to eat. And and like, I mean, I'm a, I mean, Dave, you know me. I'm a very food focused person. Yes, OK, 100%. I, I'm here in Seattle with Dave. I, the only thing I have planned is meals. I'm like, I have res- my reservation. My resi is popping off. You pinged me with uh, extreme intensity. You're like, hey, I'm going to be in Seattle. Yes, we can hang out, whatever the We're fuck. Gonna- but give me the fucking food recommendations, yes. David. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to need all your food recommendations. Not only that, um, for, for our listeners, uh, Dave and I already got together yesterday. And we went to get like these giant bread boats <laughs> like from this place near my hotel yes, yes. that I thought looked amazing. They looked like basically like... Um, mini pizzas yeah, i would say like, they're pretty good it was i would they were good yeah, yeah but like again all i care about is food and so like therefore and then also the other thing too is and i'm sure you can relate to this but it's like well i don't know because you you work at a tech company and stuff but you know in a writer's room everyone orders from the same place mm-hmm, yeah. now let's say you don't like the place which sometimes <laughs> i don't i don't want to have to eat it you know what i mean it's like Okay, here we're going to this like terrible salad place again. I'm like, okay, like I guess I'll have the terrible salad, terrible well, salad number four, why or whatever. Can't, why can't you order from a different place that you know? Because then you're making the writer's assistant or writer's uh, PA go to you, another place, and then you look like an asshole, basically. Yeah, okay. well, you are an asshole because it's like, why are you making them do another trip? You know, like, and so I just like don't want to do that, obviously. Uh-huh. But then it's like, it, oftentimes, you know, not every you can't get twelve people to agree on anything. Certainly not where to eat. Yes. And so, like, sometimes you just have to eat somewhere where you don't want to eat. But you know, when you don't have to do that, if you're working remotely, you never you can literally always order exactly what you want. Uh huh. So here's what I'm hearing from you, Andrew, is that um, being able to walk your dog and getting food from where you want, uh, literally, are like, yeah, are that's you- all I care about. <laughs> Fuck the show. Who cares if the writing's good? Doesn't matter what the topic of the show no. is. Who else is in the Who room? Who cares? Who cares? As long as I'm getting paid and I have my dog and my food, I'm fine. Who cares um, if the show's good? You know, I, I know you're being facetious, but, it, it, you know, like something that we've all learned during the pandemic is like these quality of life things actually matter. Uh, you know, honestly, right? and I, I mean, I am being facetious, but it's like that is a huge part of it. Like, and I, it's not just in the entertainment industry. Like people yeah. are realizing like there's a lot more to life than just like going to the office every day, obviously. Yeah. And yeah. like, uh, you know, Kim Cattrall, uh, <laughs> to quote Kim Cattrall, um, I, you know, <laughs> she was asked, I think, like in an interview like why she didn't come back for the Sex and the City reboot. And she said something like, I don't want to spend even one second of my time doing something I'm not comfortable with or like I'm not happy yeah. with. I was like, you know what? Go off, queen. I was like, that is, I feel the same way. Now, I'm not Kim Cattrall and I don't have Kim Cattrall money, but I'm like, yeah, like why? <laughs> if I have another option, why not? Mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it was honestly great. And I do think, so the one thing I will say is there, there are certain things that are just so much better in person. Pitching jokes is better in person. No yeah. question. Like it is. You can easier. see the reaction. You can see the reaction. Yeah. You can build off of it more easily. There's yeah. no delay. You know, sometimes yeah. there's delay in like, you know, Zoom. Bandwidth problems. Yeah. yeah. And so there's that's much better. 
same thing for if you're pitching a show or a movie. Like if you're on a Zoom, I, I've done this in the pandemic. It sucks. Because yeah, you don't know what else they're doing. You know, maybe oh, they're yeah, going they, through their they're, calendar. They're, sometimes they're very visibly going through yeah. their calendar and their emails. You can see and in stuff. the reflection yeah, like, all okay. the stuff they're doing. Like sometimes I'm like, you clearly have two monitors and you're not looking at the one with me on it. Um, but the other thing too is like they, you know, um, and 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 more to the point, when you're in a pitch, and this is something I didn't realize before I pitched. Oftentimes, when you're pitching a movie or a TV show, you're you're on with many people. It's not just you're on with like one other person or two other people or four other people. It's oftentimes like you're on with 20 other people. And so in a Zoom like that, what you're doing is – what they're doing oftentimes is there's some feedback or there's some distracting noise or someone's not on mute. And so everyone goes on mute. So you're basically pitching into complete silence with like 20 mm. strangers on. I mean it's just not conducive to comedy. Yeah. So like that sucks, right? Yeah. But overall, I think that like I really like the – um the remote stuff. And not only that, I think like the stuff that I miss from being in person is a lot of like the non-work stuff. It's the food and it's the fucking around. <laughs> like you can do a lot of fucking around when you're just all there and hanging out yeah. basically. And when you're on Zoom, it just feels like at some point you have to get down to brass tacks. <laughs> like it just can't, you just can't fuck around forever. Right. Right. Like it's just like we are all on a conference call at the end of the day. And we do need to, like, do work. Mm -hmm. And so I find that, like, Zoom rooms tend to be more efficient. In my experience, mm -hmm. like, oftentimes I'm done with Zoom rooms by, like, 4 or 5 mm -hmm. or 4.30 or whatever, you know? Whereas uh, it, sounds like times. The, it sounds like the fucking around could go on for hours. At a, totally. At, like, a it, it can if you want. Or, you know, like, so my whole point is, like, in-person is more fun. But, like, there's a lot of benefits to Zoom rooms as well. Got and it. I think that we're like many industries going to move to a hybrid model. It's mm. like, you know, a lot of rooms, it would be like, okay, so this room is in California. So if you live in New York, you got to move to Los Angeles. Yeah. Now it's a little bit like, why? You know, right. we have our Zoom setups and stuff like that. Why can't somebody be on a monitor or yeah. something? Yeah. You know, obviously it's harder for that person and they probably are missing out on some of the experience and it's harder for them to jump in. My whole thing with like um, Zoom that I hate is like, I call it like verbal jump rope or whatever, or hopscotch or whatever, <laughs> where it's like basically you have to like jump in at just the right time, I see. you know, yeah, yeah. and, and you, yeah, and you're, you know, otherwise you're cutting people off and then you have that thing where you're both starting and stopping and you're, it's sort of like you're at a four-way stop and everyone's trying to like let the other person go. This is a, this is a really fascinating thing because I've been doing podcasts for almost 15 years now and I'm very conscious about dead air mm -hmm. in podcasts. And so I've developed this like quote-unquote skill or habit, you could call it, where if I feel the person's about to come to an I, I can kind of detect when the person's yeah. about to come to an end. And then I'm like, I jump in right afterwards, right? And this has served me pretty well uh, in the podcasting world. But then recently, I realized, like a, a few years ago, um, I got on some of my feedback, like David always interrupts people during meetings. I'm like, <laughs> I, I literally was completely unaware of this behavior. Uh, cause I don't, I don't see myself as interrupting at all. And I, what I realized was happening was like when you're doing a podcast this one and they're like, they, they come to the end of their point when you cut in, it's like, Oh, you know, it's, you're, you're keeping the show going, but in a corporate environment, um, they perceive it as interrupting. Cause maybe that person's not done speaking yet or right. they had other points to make. Uh, so I totally know what you're talking well, about. Well, if you interrupt me uh, one more time during this <laughs> interview, I'm absolutely I'm absolutely giving you that feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, t uh, fair enough, fair enough. Um, okay, so uh, totally fascinating about like what makes for a good writer's room in the post-COVID or during tail end of COVID era that we're in right now. Um, so Hacks was not like a show you pitched. Like it was not, you weren't behind it, but it's a show that you worked on. Um, and I assume that beyond just being friends with the people and also going crazy, as you said, from being in the house all day, that there was something about it that spoke to you. Like yeah. basically there, there's something about this story that interests you beyond just, I'm a paid mercenary for this gig. Right? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> there was, you know, I'm always paid mercenary. I, I want my snacks. <laughs> no, but I mean like I, I, and if so what is that? That's my question. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, honestly, to answer your question, in the room at some point, we went through and we literally did our like horoscopes or like zodiac signs, but with the show. So it's like, are you a Deborah? Are you an Ava? Mm -hmm. Are you a Marcus? Whatever. And um, I said that I think I said I am a 
I am a Deborah with Marcus rising. <laughs> Mar- Marcus Moon. Marcus Moon sign. Uh-huh. But it's like, and what I mean by that is like, I am, I, I have a lot of similarities with Deborah. Now, I'm not abusive. I don't slap people. And I'm not like, um, you know, I would not say that I'm like terribly like a demanding diva. Right. But at the same other time. Than, other than snacks. Oh, but I like nice things, including <laughs> snacks. Uh-huh. Yeah. You got to have nice snacks. Yeah. You know, and so like, um, you know, she is very fancy and she has her like creams and stuff like that. And, you know, let's just say when, when it comes to figuring out which night creams Deborah Vance uses, it's me. <laughs> I mean, really? not always. Um, Are you actually, a La Mer fan? Um, yeah, actually, I think they, I think that actually the creators might be Lemire fans. I don't think I wrote that, but it's <laughs> uh-huh. like, you know, yeah. I, I just like, I, you know, the led bed that's in the bus, yeah. you know, that was my pitch because I'm just like led therapy, you know, it's great. You gotta have it. Um, but you know, I, I do think that I have like, and I, you know, honestly, I like writing stand up for her. I, uh, have written for standups before I have that monologue sort of experience. I wrote for Michelle Wolf, you know? And so it's, it's really fun to, for me to get to write stand up and not have to deliver it. I don't, I, I've done stand up like a handful of times and it was just not for me. You know, some standups are like, I love bombing. I, it, it gave me the bug. I was like, eh, it felt terrible. What are you talking about? I would never, after I bombed, I never wanted to do it again. So, you know, um, so it's fun. And you get to write for Gene Smart, who's like amazing. Yeah. So I really, really identify in some ways, um, both healthy and toxic with um, Deborah Vance. Uh-huh. And um, I also think, obviously, I identify with Marcus, right? It's, it's a extremely queer show. I'm queer. And like, he is a, you know, character who has a lot of similarities to things that I've struggled with in my life, you know, his current arc and, you know, in both seasons one and two is about like work-life balance and his dedication to Deborah and to, you know, his work as opposed to having a personal life and stuff like that. And I, I, for a long time, I put aside my personal life for my career and I felt like I had to because I came up through uh, a thing where you're just like, you always be making stuff, always be writing, always, you know, and um, I always felt like I could be doing more. And then, you know, you have to like set other things aside if you're constantly doing, you know, if you're doing five shows a week at UCB and, you know, writing sketches on the side and trying to write submissions for different late night shows, you know? Um, I think like when you're a young creative, like you're kind of like, I need to keep doing it until I make it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you, you can't do other things. And, um, and you know, his whole arc is about basically how he has not figured out how to do that. And also, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with this book, The Velvet Rage, but we've talked about it in our writer's room a lot. But it's basically this sort of like seminal work by this gay uh, psychologist about, you know, and this doesn't apply necessarily to all gay men. It's, it's very sort of centered on a certain type of cis, often white, um, like highly educated, let's say, um, uh, gay man. But it's a lot about how you compartmentalize different parts of your life. You, uh, I think he calls it splitting. And so you don't let anyone ever see the whole side of you because mm-hmm. that would be dangerous, right? And especially if there, you have this thing that you're, you've been so ashamed of for so long, you can't let anyone see the whole you. And you see that sort of in Marcus's relationship with Wilson, where Wilson sees some of him but doesn't get all of him ever. And then the other thing that they talk about is this concept of like basically learning to earn love and affection, right? So you're like, I have this huge thing that I'm ashamed of. So what I have to do is I need to be a straight A student. I need to be on the honor roll. I need to do all this community service and I need to be an all-star athlete and I need to whatever. I need to get into the best college and have the best job and have the best house and everything. And he talks about like how like oftentimes in the gay community, you notice like there's these men who just have abs and who have the perfect bodies and, you know, the best resumes and and the most amazing houses and cars and whatever. And how in his estimation, it comes from this like deep seated shame and feeling as though you cannot be loved. So therefore you must make yourself lovable in all these different ways. And whether or not that's textual or subtextual, I think you see that with Marcus's character Mm -hmm. where he is so, um, eager to try to win Deborah's love and affection and other people around him by doing things, right? It's like, uh, not only by like faith, but by works, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like he's like, I need to have, um, I need to, the, the harder I work, 
the better of a body that I have, the better of a you know job and, yeah. and empire, title, the bigger the empire. Then is. the yeah. the more people will actually love me and pay attention to me and um, care about me, and which which of course is an extremely toxic mindset. But you know, I identify with that. You know, I was I definitely throughout my entire life and probably even now have uh you know done that to try to get people to like me or or to see past the things that I don't like about myself right and so and and, and you know again I, I don't think a lot of this is in necessarily the text and the dialogue but that is what we've discussed when it comes to Marcus mm-hmm. you know um, is that he um, he really tries to to um, work to try to get people um, on his side yeah and you were talking about how like you had to sacrifice a lot of your personal life and and all these things in the pursuit of success like when you look back on that time how do you think about it are you like oh i was so stupid back then and it's hard to you know i'm not not that i think it was bad necessarily Mm -hmm. um like uh because i had great friends i still like you know made had great friendships it's not as though i didn't hang out with people or anything and it's not as though you know, it didn't work out for me because now I'm getting to do what I want to do. Um, however, there are times when I was like, I took everything so seriously. I wish I hadn't, you know, mm-hmm. I wish I hadn't put so much pressure on myself. And I, you know, struggled with depression and anxiety and I really didn't address it at all. You know, I didn't um, seek help. I didn't go to therapy. I didn't, you know, talk to anybody about it. And I just sort of dealt with it thinking like this was just normal, but it absolutely was not, right? Um, I was nervous and anxious and fearful like all the time, Um, not only about, you know, um, my career, but about everything. Well, I think also like you and I grew up in an environment where like therapy was not a uh, widely embraced, you know, thing. No, still isn't. Yeah, you know, it's often seen as a sign of uh, weakness or that something's wrong with you if you're in therapy. Um, Or... uh, you know, why do therapy if there's a much better solution, which is prayer, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, by the way, is like weirdly a form of meditation and therapy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I do think and not to not to say that you should just pray if you have mental health issues. <laughs> um, that is absolutely not what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, please don't be mistaken. But it is to me like it, it is silly for somebody to say therapy is dumb, but prayer is good because to me, they're part and parcel of the same thing. Mm-hmm. You're self-soothing, right? Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. finding ways to work through your problems in prayer. You're kind of naming them and you're sort of asking some higher power to like take care of them. And in therapy, you're also naming them yeah. and you're asking your therapist to help you work through them. You yeah. know? So it's like, um, you know, I, I just, I, I didn't, I didn't date because during that time, because I had, I felt like I didn't have the time um, and I felt like it was a distraction from what I really wanted. And like I said, I didn't address like a lot of the things that I think would have made me happier, like, you know, actually taking care of myself, um, and not like, you know, going out all the time, doing shows all the time, feeling, you know, working multiple jobs to pay my bills and stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're in a better. I, I assume you're in a better place. Today. I, I am. I, I am. I'm, I, I'm, I, yeah. I, 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 I uh, do not miss my twenties. <laughs> um, Hacks has something that I think uh, is a really interesting challenge. Uh, I, you know, I think Hacks season one is like basically a masterpiece, like just amazing arc all the way through. You know, memorable characters, etc. Um, but it has a challenge that is true for shows like uh, Ted Lasso, another show that does this, where, like, it starts with, like, two characters who, like, uh, or, or two or more characters who, like, don't like each other, basically. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the purpose of the first season is to, like, bring them together or have them like each other or have them find some kind of shared ground and have them find some kind of shared respect, right? And that's always, like, an inherently compelling journey to, like, watch that happen, um, especially if you as the audience are, like, uh, one of the characters is like an audience surrogate in the case, as it is the case with Ted Lasso, I think, right? Like Ted Lasso, it's like, you also are annoyed by this guy. And then like, as the characters in the show, like start to like him, you like th- him as well. Um, and Hacks is kind of a similar dynamic with like Ava and Deborah, right? And so like, that's kind of the dynamic of the first season. By the end of the first season, very mild spoilers for end of first season of Hacks, but like they, uh, they, they have a, a better shared understanding of each other, right? So then from that point on, uh, 
more challenging to find like an overall season arc, I think. And I'm curious, like how you think about that? Like, A, am I describing that challenge correctly? B, how do you think about a problem like that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're identifying it well, like, you know, um, how do you basically keep that tension between yes. the two of them? Yes. Well, for, for one thing, I think like we tried to use sort of the cliffhanger that we had at the end of season one, which yeah. was the email that Ava fired off when she was angry at Deborah. Yeah to these showrunners to basically like, you know, um, uh, use Deborah as inspiration for their show about a bitch prime minister. Um, and, uh, that was like, sort of like this, um, it felt like our sort of like Chekhov's gun or whatever, where Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, we loaded it. We said that this thing is happening in the finale. And so therefore she has, there have to be consequences to it in, in season two. And, you know, again, very mild spoilers. There are, and that leads to a lot of conflict between Deborah and Ava, as well as some things that, like, they say that they can't really take back, right? Mm-hmm. But the other thing, too, is, like, in some ways, I think they're so who they are that they that there's always going to be tension. Mm-hmm. Like, even if they do start to like each other, which I think begins in episode six of, uh, of season, season one, one yeah. where they really bond for the first time, like, they still absolutely see things completely differently, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and we try to get that out in different ways. You know, in um, episode four, which is they're on a lesbian cruise in, in uh, season two, you know, they start having these, like, very... Uh, sort of um, in-depth talks about sexuality and bisexuality and how to Deborah it's more of a binary and it's something that she never really thought about. And obviously it's very different for Ava. And I think that like, because of their generational difference, they will always sort of have that tension, if that makes sense. They just are never going to see completely eye to eye because fundamentally they come from different times and uh, different paradigms, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. One other topic uh, I don't know if you heard. Will, <laughs> Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars this year. Oh my God, did he? Dave Chappelle was tackled at the Netflix's Joke Festival, mm-hmm. and so there's been a lot of talk about like um, people not finding certain forms of comedy acceptable, right? And this is particularly reflected in the stand-up community. People are like, they think you know, stand-up as our art form is in jeopardy. I guess I'm curious, as somebody who writes comedy for a living, um, what you think of the current political environment when it comes to comedy and uh do you feel quote-unquote safe to say the things that you want to say and potentially offend people or do you have any kind of philosophy around that you know honestly my thoughts about cancel culture generally are that like we you know if you're holding a corporation or somebody with measurable power responsible then um that's good i think you should be right Uh like like the stuff that happened with Disney earlier and the contributions to anti-gay lawmakers yeah. and the silence on the don't say gay bill. Like, you know, that to me is effective and it was effective. They got them to walk back those comments and a lot of um, Disney employees walked out and I thought it was powerful. If cancel culture is applied to people who have no power, no measurable power. If they're not, you know, in the, if they're not, you know, the boss of anybody, if they're somebody who did something stupid, obviously, you know, that's not okay. But at the same time, I'm like, is this getting the same results and as important really as like holding somebody accountable who does have all those things, right? Right. If somebody, if you're trying, if you're saying, okay, this person has a record of being abusive or racist or homophobic, and they happen to be the head of a network (laughs) and they decide what gets greenlit and what doesn't, then I think that that's like extremely important Mm -hmm. to amplify and say, this is not okay. And this person shouldn't be in this position. Um, on the other hand, if it's somebody who, you know, um, did something stupid and um, but lacks all of that responsibility and power, um, that to me is not as much a priority. I'm not as interested in that. Yeah. I'm much more interested in like, okay, how do we hold the people in power accountable and um, make them change in material ways to help the most marginalized people? Yeah. Sadly, uh 
what you're describing right now is nuance, you know, like, uh, <laughs> and I think like the internet is no place for nuance. Exactly. Nuance dies on the internet. And I think that that's, what's unfortunate is I, I think like we all have, um, schadenfreude in yeah. our systems. We like seeing people, um, get what they deserve or whatever. But I think that you're completely right. Like on the internet and specifically on places like Twitter and whatever, it's hard to sort of like, um, separate, like, the things that I think are going to lead to real change, people getting the jobs that they have not had the opportunity to get, you know, people getting the opportunities that they have not had the opportunity to get, and people being held responsible who have systematically upheld um, racist and homophobic systems, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the people who are just doing dumb shit. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen that change as time has gone on? And what I mean by that is not necessarily like, cancellation or accountability or anything like that but just i guess um do you feel like writers rooms today are more welcoming than yes. they have been in the past and, yes definitely and, yeah. and and i think that's the way it should be yeah. like you know i think we're a long ways off from the friends lawsuit and i don't know that it would have been decided in the same way if it were today mm. and i think people are much more conscious and should be of the way they speak in writers rooms the way they address people and the way that they just even talk about topics and characters avoiding jokes that are sizest or ableist which you know i think not so long ago would have been rife in many writers rooms mm -hmm. like i think that that's super important and i think that like people are just like taking it much more seriously and also i think setting up systems where people can give feedback on this stuff without feeling like there's a fear of retaliation yeah which i think is super important you know um and I, I hope that, like, more people do it. I think that there's also, like, a new generation of showrunners, right? Like, Jen, Paul, and Lucia are running the show for the first time. I think they're doing a great job. And they also happen to be, like, first-time showrunners who have worked, I think, not always in environments that they thought were good yeah. <laughs> or healthy. And there is, I think, like, a generational shift as well of, like, the people saying, okay, this is my first time to be a boss, and I'm going to do things differently. Right. Right. Well, Andrew, I'm really glad you've made it into one of those writer's rooms. Yeah. Um, but uh, Andrew Law is a writer and producer who has worked on shows such as The Good Place in Silicon Valley. He's also written several episodes of the HBO Max original series Hacks, which is streaming right now. Andrew, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Weekly Recommendations, the part of the show each week where we talk about something we've been listening to, watching, reading, smelling, drinking, etc. This week, I want to recommend an article over at the Present Age Newsletter, uh, which is one of my favorite newsletters written by Parker Malloy. Uh, the Present Age published an article called The Bleak Spectacle of the Amber Heard Johnny Depp Trial, written by Michael Hobbs, one of my favorite writers and podcasters. He has written one of the definitive accounts about the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. And I don't know about you, but wading through all of the mess that's online about this trial has been really challenging. Uh, this is one resource that lays everything out in relatively simple detail. It's easy to understand, uh, and it goes into the implications of what we've been seeing with that trial. So again, the article headline is The Bleak Spectacle of the Amber Heard Johnny Depp Trial. It's by Michael Hobbs. Check it out at the Present Age newsletter. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Here's what Andrew Law recommended for his weekly recommendation. Obviously, if you haven't seen everything everywhere all at once, you absolutely must. I mean, I'm probably like the 900th person to tell you this, but it is... <laughs> a movie that for so many reasons I am in awe of. I have no idea how they shot it, how they wrote it, um, how any of it works story-wise, but I was so emotionally affected by it and the Daniels are geniuses. Go watch everything everywhere all at once as soon as you can. That's going to do it for us today here on Culturally Relevant. This episode was edited and produced by me, David Chen, and it was powered by Simplecast. Check it out at simplecast.com. During his weekly recommendations, Andrew recommended Everything Everywhere All at Once. If you're a fan of that film, stay tuned for next week's episode of Culturally Relevant. There's something cool I have planned for it. I think you're going to want to hear it. Until then, thanks for listening. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>